What is going on everyone? This is Miles Dompierre and welcome to Xbox Chatterdays episode 86. Today I am stoked to be joined by modern vintage gamer. How are you doing on this fine Saturday, my dude? Hello, Miles. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. And I appreciate you asking me to come on your show. You know, like I don't I don't go around saying to a podcast, you know, why don't you have me on the show? Because I don't feel like that's appropriate. But I do love the fact that you reached out to me a couple of weeks ago and said, hey, I'd love to have you on. Because uh, I, I really uh, like the stuff that you do on, on social media and, and YouTube and stuff. So yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I'm stoked to have you on. Yeah, I reached out a little while back. I'm a big fan of your content for folks who are unaware. MVG has a great YouTube channel that dives deep into tech, hardware, software, a lot of retro stuff that I love. Um, you're also in the development world as well. You're currently working at Limited Run Games. So I'm excited yes. to get your prospects and your insights because there have been a lot of industry developments this week and it's important to get some context. We all have our opinions, our thoughts, and it's nice to get some, some balanced perspective, you know, when it matters. So I'm excited to have you on. I'm grateful you're joining me on my little show here. Um, Thank you. Some quick housekeeping before we get into the show today, get into your introduction proper. As you may have noticed, things are a little different over here at Xbox Chatterdays. If you're watching the show live, you may have no noticed the channel has changed. Uh, we are no longer streaming on YouTube.com slash Windows Central Gaming. We are streaming on YouTube.com slash Miles Dompierre. And I have started my own little channel. We've migrated Xbox Chatterdays over there, so I'm grateful for all the folks who are joining us. If this is your first time, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. If you're a returning fan, um, appreciate you. Appreciate you uh, joining me as we make this transition. So there's been a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes. Won't really get into all of that. But the long and short is I have Xbox Chatterdays over here, which I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for everyone who watches, listens, and all of that. Um, as I work towards you know, solidifying this channel, growing this channel, things are going to be a little different in terms of Super Chats which was a big part of the show, the community inter interaction. I'll still be monitoring the chat, trying to pull questions where I can. Uh, in the interim, I dropped a link in the chat. If you want to have a, quote, super chat for now, um, go to, sorry, here's a link, uh, streamlabs.com slash milesdompierre slash tip. Um, I'll drop that in the chat again for the people watching live. And if you're not watching live and listening on audio services, appreciate you. For, th for you, things won't change really at all. all. The audio versions will stay where they've been. That's all good there. All right. Awesome. Uh, one thing, one thing. Uh, hit up Miles with a like in, in this and hit him up with a sub as well. I just subscribed to the channel. So if you haven't subscribed, get, get hit that subscription button. Get on Appreciate that. you. Yeah, it's, I've, it's only been going for about a week and a half. I have a decent number of, of people joining me over there. Um, huge shout out to all the kind words and support. It's, it's been really cool. Um, means a lot. Um, you know, I've had a lot of people saying, why don't you do your own channel? Why don't you do your own thing? And I'm like, eh, nobody cares. Nobody wants to see me do my own thing. I got Windows Central. I'll, and then I pushed it off for a while. And eventually I was like, you know what? All right, let's do it. Let's let's yeah. do it. Let's see what happens. And it's been so cool to have people be like, all right, let's go. Let's do this. And so, yeah, obviously appreciate everyone coming along for the ride. And we have a lot to talk about today for this episode, this fresh episode. As you've seen, I've, I've refreshed the overlays. I've refreshed some things about the, the show, trying to, you know, make sure Xbox Chatterdays 2.0 is nice, nice and special. So we're going to be talking about the latest comments from Phil Spencer on the Activision Blizzard King acquisition, Xbox's plans for mobile gaming, some drama surrounding Bethesda, um, why Project Keystone was scrapped, the Game Awards nominees, and a whole bunch more. But first, 
MVG, for the people who maybe don't know, let everyone know who you are, where they can find you, and why you love gaming. Oh, man. Tough questions straight up. The holy trinity. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah, right? Getting straight well, into uh, it. So, yeah, I'm MVG. My name is, my real name is Demetrius. Uh, I am a game developer. I work at Limited Run Games. I was previously at Night Dive Studios. So I have, um, you know, video game experience as a developer. Um, as Miles mentioned, as Miles mentioned, I'm also a YouTuber running the channel Modern Vintage Game. I have 700 and something thousand subs right now. I do weekly videos uh, every Monday. I'm doing some YouTube shorts as well, which is I'm kind of messing around with that. Um, but yeah, I um, I uh, I love gaming because I think it was something that was instilled into me from a very young age. When I was, I think about eight or nine years old, my my dad kind of came home from work one day and just plonked a Commodore 64 um, on my desk and said, figure this out. This is a computer. This is a new thing. You know, this is cool. This could be, this could be interesting. And it kind of just went from there, man. Like I, I started playing games from a very young age and um, I've always been uh, a gamer, you know, um, throughout the generations from the early days of the 8-bit micros to today. And I will continue to do so as long as I can. So uh, to, again, thanks for thanks for having me on, Miles. It's a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate you. You're, you're someone I've followed for a while. I love your channel. I love a lot of your content that you do over there. Here, over there. So I'm excited to have you on. Um, and again, I do really appreciate your your insights to everything. Because, like you said, you've worked you've worked on games. You've worked with platforms. You understand more than the average person on Twitter about how some of that works. So a big how I want to start the show today is I want to get your take on basically the current state, the state of current gen, because we've mm -hmm. had a lot of questions in recent weeks about performance, capabilities of hardware, platforms. We've had Gotham Knights, a next gen or current gen only title on console, not being able to exceed 30 FPS. We've had a Plague Tale Requiem, another current gen only title, failing to hit above 40 FPS. We've had Pokemon. Scarlet and Violet running on the Switch. Uh, not well. Not well. I'm a big Pokemon fan. You guys know I love Pokemon. Some of you wish I would never talk about Pokemon, but I love it. All right, I do. I've been playing it, and who mama? Oh, I'm going to be making a video about some of the weird stuff that I've discovered in the game. Some of it's just funny because it's just so bad and so weird that it reminds me of the early day, like launch Skyrim, where some of that stuff was just so janky and so weird. But just, it wasn't game breaking. It was just hilarious. But there's been a lot of questions about, is the hardware we currently have going to be enough for the future? So you kind of did a video on this recently that I think you did an amazing job of talking about the pros and cons of each platform when it comes to putting out a game on these platforms and working with these dev kits. So mm -hmm. in your experience, what are the pros and cons of working on a PlayStation dev kit, a Nintendo dev kit, and an Xbox dev kit? Well, it's a good question, Miles. I think you know the best way to answer that is all of them right now um, uh, are, are good dev kits to work with. Uh, the tools that they provide and the documentation around, uh, for the most part, is is excellent. I think all three of them know that making games is is difficult, and they try to provide the best possible way for you to succeed in making games. Um, the switch is, is a good one where I will say that they've made it very accessible for, you know, smaller studios, indies, one person development studios to make games. And that was not always the case in the past with the bad old days of, and I didn't 
I didn't make games on the Wii U or the Wii, so I'm only only you know, I guess for what I've heard from other people that I know. But it was not a great environment, um, you know, to to make games on. So Nintendo's really done a lot of homework, making sure that they give uh, developers the tools that they need, and all three of them do. So I guess the pros for me is they uh, the hardware is is good to work with. The support around the games that you make is good if you need some help or or some documentation in general. It's pretty good. I guess the negatives though, uh, which is which is a good question because you don't really we don't really talk about that as much. But the negatives, I think, it's really not. I guess it's not really a negative in 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 the traditional sense, but it's more a case of when you get a new console um because we're talking about the the playstation 5 and the xbox series s and x they're still relatively new i mean i know that they, they, they just hit they, they all hit two years just recently right but in i guess in a development sense that's still pretty early um and one of the one of the things that i found some pain with was just kind of learning some of the new features of, of the new hardware so for example on the Xbox, right? How do you do 120 hertz? I mean, it's easier to say, oh, you just flick that switch and everything is 120 hertz, but it doesn't work like that. Um, the same applies for the PlayStation. Um, haptic feedback on the controller. How does that even, where do you start with that, right? Like, you know what you're trying to accomplish, but how do you get there? And that that's, you know, something that I feel like um, while the, uh, the uh, hardware makers have done a good job in basically advocating for you to or pushing you to start using those features they don't always give you um the appropriate documentation or code samples or whatever for you to actually get there so there's there's usually some type of back and forth where you're sitting in support tickets or something to get what you need but ultimately look i think making games in 2022 with with modern dev kits is so much easier than it was 10 15 20 years ago um you know we've heard horror stories of how hard it was to make games on the playstation 3 for example and the three the xbox 360 um was was difficult initially and just stuff like that um those days seem like they're 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 way behind us now i think it's it's a lot more easy it's a lot more streamlined to you know to make games for and i like i said i I, i'm pretty happy with the current state of dev kits across across all, all platforms yeah, it's it's interesting as we look towards comments like that that suggest that, yeah, it is easier than ever before to develop a game. Um, but I think it's still important to note that that doesn't mean it's easy overall to develop a right. game. Because one thing that I have learned as I've talked to more and more developers is that the little things that you see, like talking about 30 FPS versus 60 FPS or 60 FPS versus 120 FPS, there is this kind of misconception that, yeah, you flip a switch and things are things are good. Frame rate's yeah. doubled, you're good to go. Uh, when I had Jason Ronald on the show, when I was talking to him about FPS boost, which a lot of people are like, oh, okay, it's just something that uncaps the frame rate. And no, that's that's not the reality of how that tech works. You have to go in, especially with, when we talked about Dark Souls 3, they had to go zone by zone, region by region, and adjust a whole series of parameters just to ensure that that boost to frame rate didn't completely destroy all of the animations in, in a zone. And so that's yeah. the, the kind of level, and that's the, the kind of thing that people have to pay attention to when we talk about 30 versus 60 FPS. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about 30 versus 60 FPS, when we look at current-gen games like Gotham Knights, for, as the infamous recent example, do you have any concerns about the hardware capabilities of the PS5, Xbox Series S, and Xbox Series X right now as we move towards what's next? 
Honestly, I don't. You know, there was a narrative that the Series S, you know, that, that whole narrative about the Series S holding Next Generation back. Uh-huh. I, I think that's, that's absolutely absurd. You know, take it from me, uh, anyone that, that's listening. It, 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 that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Like, it, it's really, if you, if you take the example of Gotham Knights, and you mentioned Pokemon earlier, uh, and Plague Tale, the common, the common thing with all these games is there is a push from the publisher to make, ensure that this game, these games come out at the time that they want them to. Um, and in some instances, game delays are just not, not negotiable, right? So basically developers are doing the best they can to, to um, deliver an experience, which is good enough, I will say. Uh, but look, I don't subscribe to the fact that the Series S is holding next-gen back. In fact, if you look at Gotham Knights, I believe it runs better on the Series S than it does on the Series I think there's a more consistent frame rate, yeah. So, I mean, that alone should just completely snuff out any notion that the Series S is holding next generation back. It's really just a matter of, look, developers don't want to make a game for the Series X and then be like, well, now we have to make sure it runs well on the Series S. They don't want to, they don't want to deal with two SKUs, but unfortunately... That's the situation we're in, and you know you have that. That's if you're going to make a game for the Xbox, then you have to cover both those platforms, and that's just the reality of the situation. It's not something developers like, and I think there are some, there is some frustration from devs out there that, you know, they that they don't want to, um, you know, drop specifications. I mean, if you've got a a system that has 16 gigabytes of memory, and then you move over to one that has eight. Um, and if you have one that has um, a very powerful GPU and you move over to one that has a much weaker GPU, no developer is going to be like, yeah, let's, let's, let's do this. I you love know, this that. That's great. sick. You know, everyone's going to be like, okay, well, let's, let's get the Series S version out now. And I think that's ultimately the end result of this. It's just um, there is a lot more work that needs to be done. You're not, you're not focused on one target. You're focused on two. And... I think that's kind of the reality of of you know what we're talking about here versus you know uh, any notion that a Series S is holding back next gen. And I think that's really important. The, the timelines that you touch on when we look at console versions of games, when we look at publisher developer relationships, the reality is that at a certain point, the publisher wants the game out or needs the game out, and yep. that is going to ultimately determine how optimized all of these all of these versions can be and at a certain mm-hmm. point there are probably hard conversations behind the scenes that say we have to hit this deadline what do we need to cut feature wise that we can ensure that this game ships and then with stuff like gotham knight it's, it was probably 60 fps and probably wanted to offer a performance mode there might potentially be a performance mode offered down the road but when it comes to that launch window that launch timing the conversation with the publisher it just wasn't feasible and Pokemon, another example of they, Game Freak, they put out two games per year, or this year. Yeah. Pokemon Legends Arceus, Pokemon, Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. Clearly, Pokemon Scarlet and Violet, the most ambitious project that they've ever done. Um, but that being said, yeah, they weren't going to miss that holiday window. Definitely Pokemon not. And- Company wasn't going to be like, all right, well, I guess we can just wait until the holidays. We need to sell Switches, but we can just wait. That's fine. That's, that, that wasn't the conversation. <laughs> Well, I mean, also consider the marketing as well, like all the merchandise around it, right? Like, I mean, you can't just up and delay the game. I mean, look at Halo Infinite when they delayed that game. Do you remember they had Halo Infinite on the box of the Xbox, right? They had um, Doritos and Mountain Dew. They had all this stuff ready to go. And honestly, I mean, we haven't really spoken about it, but 
imagine how embarrassing that would have been for Xbox. That, that's that's just completely embarrassing for the brand that 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 happened, right? I mean, they they mitigated it and they, they handled it very well, and I, I give them credit for it. But you know, no one wants to do that. No no one wants to delay anything. But unfortunately, um, you know, that's that's how things go um, in in video games publishers when they put their foot down and say, look, it has to be ready for the holiday. Developers are going to do whatever it takes to make sure that the game doesn't fall over on day one. Yeah, and that's kind of the unfortunate reality here. So when we talk about, you know, the Series S, quote, holding back next gen, I think realistically what it is is the Series S is maybe the last version that gets optimized and it probably gets the least amount of optimization. They get it running, yep. they get it out at launch, and that's why we saw with Dying Light 2, a couple yeah. months after launch, there was the performance update because yeah, they had... Six, six, runs at 60, right? Like they yeah. ended up patching it and fixing it. Cyberpunk was the same. Like eventually patches will come out that will address the concerns that, that people are having. And again, it just comes down to you have to meet this date. You have to meet this target date. And now it's like, okay, now that we've shipped the game, now go and fix it and actually make it work properly. And, you know, that's that's kind of video games in 2022. That's 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 what That's what we do, you know. Yeah, that's just kind of the, the cold, hard reality of the business side. Because again, mm -hmm. I, I'm a big advocate of if your team is telling you they need more time, they need more resources, you know, give it to them. It'll be a better product at the end of the day. People will be more excited about it. But then I also understand it's not my money. I'm not the one investing millions of dollars and having to juggle these deadlines for what's next and having to make sure this game comes out so we can afford the next game. Like those aren't the, the, the that's not what I'm thinking about as a player of these games. I'm thinking about the development team, what they want. I'm thinking about the development team when they have to put out something that they know isn't performing the way that people want and then have to deal with the backlash and feedback. That's who I'm thinking about. But again, I understand it's a lot more complicated. There's a lot, there's the business factor that unfortunately um, dictates a lot of these decisions. Yep, so, spot on. Um, quick shout out to everyone who's joining us live. I see some folks in the chat. Blue Moon is saying that it's not showing up in the YouTube feed. Yes, this is the first live stream ever on this channel. So it's probably not showing up in a lot of feeds. You're probably coming here via Twitter. So again, if you're, if you're new, digging the show, you know, I'd, don't like to talk about the algorithm, but yeah, you have to like the video, subscribe, share it out, all of that good stuff. But because this is the inaugural live stream on this channel, it's not going to pop up in a lot of feeds, I don't imagine. Hit that like button. We got 28 likes and 42 people. Let's get 100% ratio yeah. for the first click. time ever in YouTube history. Click on that thumbs up. Um, all right. So the burning question here before we move on from this topic. Are we getting mid-gen refreshes. Do you think that is a realistic possibility when we look at Xbox's series model? Because I've talked about this in the past, how I think they've implemented the series model to be more in line with phones. So they can do the X2, the S2, blah, S Pro, S Ultra, whatever they decide to do. I think that's specifically the reason that they dropped the series moniker. Do you think we're getting mid-gen refreshes for PlayStation and Xbox within the next couple of years? No, I, I don't. I, I don't think um, there's really a reason to, to have mid-gen refreshes. And if we go back and look at the PS4 Pro and the Xbox One X, the reason why those systems came out was because of the emergence of 4K televisions, right? So um, there was a big push for 4K. Now, I know 8K is is a thing and you can buy some 8K displays now, but look, the reality is we're nowhere near targeting 8k for video games we're not we haven't mastered 4k 60 yet 
Now you no. could argue that a mid-gen refresh would kind of lock on that 4K 60, um, you know, target that that we're looking for. But even I don't think that's enough for for hardware makers to say, you know, we need to give developers, you know, a little bit more power. Look, I mean, in many ways, Miles, to me, it feels like this generation has barely started because everything that we've seen so far is mostly cross-generational. Obviously, Sony has some exclusives as well. Microsoft will come out with some next year. But up until this point, it just feels like we're we're, we're still kind of stuck in, you know, this kind of cross-generational thing. So the notion of, of a mid-gen refresh is just hard for me to to really kind of get my head around. I don't think there's a reason for it. And I don't think that developers are really looking for that right now. And I also want to say that on the consumer side, it's a very hard pill to swallow to, you know, to ask your your customer base to now move on to this kind of half iteration of a generation of a new piece of hardware when number one, we've had so many supply chain issues over the last few years. It's still, I mean, you can you can pretty much buy a Series S anywhere these days. Series Xs are getting better uh, as far as availability, but they're not, it's certainly not, I can log onto Amazon right now and order one and have it tomorrow. That's there's still, you still have to kind of jump through hoops to find one. PS5s, as you know, are still pretty much impossible to find. Um, I mean, they, they come up a lot more regularly on, on websites and the PlayStation Direct Store and all that stuff, you can get one. But look, I, I don't see there's any real use case for a mid-gen refresh at this time. I think developers are still learning about the Series S, Series X and the PS5 hardware. We haven't really seen any true next-gen experience, I want to say. Um, we um, And I think that will change over the next few years. But let's let's get some games out first, you know, before we talk about what's next. Because right now, we're still stuck in that kind of cross-generational thing. I think that's beautifully said. This generation, even if there were potentially plans already in place to have maybe a mid-gen refresh as things got going, this generation has been so delayed in terms of development, in terms of the cadence for these games releasing, the whole 2020 situation that has fundamentally disrupted a lot of plans that were maybe happening behind the scenes especially on the game development side. So as you said, we haven't even seen many games that have been developed with new dev kits. We've a fraction of games that have been actually developed from the ground up with new dev kits in mind is, is next to nothing. Ne- almost no game has released that was made for current gen consoles. It's just, it's just the reality. So we're still waiting for that push. As we've seen PlayStation, you know, they got memed on because Jim Ryan came out and said, we believe in generations and our games are exclusive. And then most of their games, as we've seen, you can run them on PS4. Let's be real. They can, and they have released them on PS4 because fundamentally what they're developing for hasn't changed because this was in development during the PS4 era, during the Xbox One era. And they're, you know, obviously updating and enhancing it where they can, but it wasn't made for these new consoles. So a lot of these dev kits haven't even been tapped into at all. We, Xbox Velocity Architecture. And that's something that I've been asking developers about because they talk about the feature. They talk about what you can do. I don't know of a single game that's really used it in a, in a sense that impacts the gameplay because obviously it can impact load speed. But when you watch the tech demo and they, and they pan around the screen and you see all of the textures 
instantly there in incredibly high resolution. And in the background, it's not rendering any textures really at all to, to give you maximum bandwidth. I don't know if you've heard of anyone using it, but I haven't heard of a single game using that technology. No, not, not, at least not at the moment. Um, but I think there are probably some studios that are, that are messing around with it right now. But no, I, I don't know of anyone that's actually using it officially at this time. So yeah, there's a lot of untapped potential in these dev kits. So yeah. I know the PS4 or PS5 Pro rumors have been circulating since before the PS5 launched, but I, I'm not expecting it. Yeah, I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, I would ask you, you know, what, what, would, what would you think a PS5 Pro would look like? I mean, what would it offer that the current model doesn't other than maybe a nice looking case? I, I was going to say a, a form factor that isn't kind of disgusting. Yeah, <laughs> like... yeah maybe a slimmer version. I mean, I could see a PS5 Slim come out where they, because, you know, PlayStation, yes. you know, they, they, when you look at their previous hardware, they, they iterate over the, the shell design and they reduce down... Um, and they shrink down the motherboard size and the chips and everything like that. I could definitely see that where the next, you know, main update is uh, cooler, runs runs um, with less power. It, you know, it, it's smaller, it's more compact. I could definitely see that, but I don't really see a change in, in specs, um, you know, for, for, for quite a while. I mean, the PS4 Slim, that's a sexy console. That thing is slick. I love the design yeah, like of that. Yeah, they and should so do that. Yeah, do that again. Do, do this straight because I have my PS5 over here. It's massive. It's all it's like low to the ground. It's almost as tall as my computer tower. It's just it's a beast. It you know, is, like, yes. It's a great console, but the, the the shell of it is it's a little yeah. comical. All right. Just just being real here. It's a little it's a strange looking console. It kind of reminds me of the weird prototypes that you would see. Like, all right, this is what the next this, like the original Xbox, the big, stupid, shiny X. They were yeah. never going to release that. That's kind of what this reminds me of, like a cool, all right, it's going to look like a space station. It's going to look like something from the future. And then they're like, we need to just put it out. This is what it's going to look like. Here you go. All right, MVG, we got to talk a little bit about some drama that's been exploding on social media. Um, to get everyone up to speed, this involves Mick Gordon, the composer of Doom 2016 and Doom Eternal and Bethesda. There have been some ugly developments. There's been a public spat about, you know, whose fault it is that the Doom Eternal soundtrack wasn't out. So strap in. There's a lot of stuff to go over, but I'm going to give you a brief overview of the situation here. So in 2020, the producer of Doom Eternal, Mark Stratton, posted an open letter on Reddit explaining why the soundtrack for Doom Eternal was delayed. Stratton accused Gordon of missing deadlines and misguiding fans with his social media posts. And that came out. That was a big deal. I remember people saying, basically blaming Mick Gordon in a public space for the delay. People were upset. Um, and then nearly two years later, in, in recent history, Mick Gordon has dropped a Medium post detailing his side of the story and posting that Stratton used this, this quote, disinformation and innuendo to unfairly place the blame on Mick Gordon for the soundtrack not shipping. Mick Gordon also stated that the tight deadline for development for Doom Eternal required finalizing music months before the gameplay and combat was even finished. Um, and then tensions ultimately came to a head here when Bethesda announced in 2019 that the special edition would come with a soundtrack by Mick Gordon. Um, Mick Gordon says he was never, at that point in time, he was never even approached about producing a full soundtrack for Doom Eternal. So he is claiming that Bethesda came out on stage at E3 and said, that you get a Mick Gordon 
produced soundtrack with the special edition, and Mick Gordon wasn't even in the loop for that. Again, this is all according to Mick Gordon's claims. And then he is also saying that a huge number of audio tracks that he made and submitted to the audio team that were denied were actually used in the game and essentially claiming that he wasn't compensated for that music. He was compensated for 12 tracks. I think he says they used 22. Um, So Gordon says that he seeked legal counsel on the matter because of this. He claims that this damaged his reputation. And because of this, uh, Mark Stratton offered him a, quote, six-figure sum to essentially not talk negatively about ZeniMax games. You, you, this was a contract that basically said, you cannot say negative things about ZeniMax games. Please don't. Which meant he could not dispute that open letter on the Reddit post. His main thing was, I want that Reddit post taken down. I don't think that's fair. I want this taken down. It represents me in a poor light, and I don't think that's fair. So clearly, initially, he didn't uh, instantly go on Twitter and say, well, this is BS. He has been working behind the scenes with legal counsel to get this resolved. So following some backlash, following this statement uh, or following this claim, these claims from Mick Gordon, Bethesda has dropped an official statement on this post. So I'm going to read it here because it's it's interesting and it's it's just amplifying this drama tenfold. So here is the statement from Bethesda. The recent post by Mick Gordon both mischaracterized and misrepresented the team at id Software, the development of Doom Eternal, Marty Stratton, and Chad Mossholder with a one-sided and unjust account of an irreparable professional relationship. We are aware of all the details and history in this matter and unequivocally support Marty, Chad, and the team at id Software. We reject the distortion of the truth and selective presentation of incomplete, quote, facts. We stand ready with full and complete documented evidence to disclose in an appropriate venue as needed. The statements posted online have incited harassments and threats of violence against Marty, Chad, and the id Software team. Any threats or harassment directed towards members of our teams will be met with swift and appropriate action to protect their health and safety. We remain incredibly proud of id's previous collaborations with Mick Gordon and ask that fans refrain from reaching conclusions based on his account and, more importantly, from attacking any of the individuals mentioned on either side. And just one more nugget of drama. So after Bethesda, after Bethesda <laughs> posted this publicly, Mick Gordon redropped his tweet that said, "I was offered six figures to stay quiet. I think the truth is more important." So he is Bethesda's doubling down. Mick Gordon's doubling down. MVG, what is your read on this very, very public spat? Man, this is this is tough. I mean, I, I do feel for Mick on this one. I mean, I think in general the industry needs to get better when it comes to crediting and compensating contractors, consultants who do work with AAA studios. And I think the situation is just kind of sad. And, you know, there's no, there's really no winners here. Um, and like, while I do hope that this does get resolved amicably, I mean, I feel like Bethesda's firing a shot back that's basically saying, we'll see you in court, buddy. And we're going to prove everything that you've said is is false. And look, Knowing Bethesda, they probably have about 40 lawyers on retainer right now that mm-hmm. um, that have vetted that statement and they've cross-checked it and gone through it so many times. So I think that they're, they're definitely in CYA mode. But look, I, I do feel for Mick on this one. Um, I do think that he was wronged. Um, whether all the information that he has presented um, is is accurate, I can't say, but I do believe that he has been wronged on this one. Um, but 
having said that, I will tell you a story, Miles. Um, so I worked with Bethesda and id on the Quake remaster in 2021. We worked with id and Bethesda for two years on that project. And I will say my experience with id software, uh, I don't know Marty Stratton. Um, I did uh, chat with him on a Zoom call when we when we shipped the game, but I don't know him at the same kind of on the same level as Mick Gordon did with, you know, the emails that were going back and forth. I certainly, there was certainly like five managers probably as a buffer between me and Marty, but um, ultimately I, uh, I really like working with those guys. They were nothing but professional, uh, both Bethesda and it software during a very hectic period. I might add, we were consulting for it software. So essentially we're doing pretty much the same thing as what, what Marty's doing in, in, in that sense. And, um, my experience was 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 fantastic. They they were nothing but professional and great to work for. And we had to ship a game on five separate platforms on on QuakeCon twenty twenty one. So there was pressure there. There was there were deadlines there. There was you know there was um, uh, some stress there. But ultimately, I have nothing but good things to say. But with that said, look, I, I do think that Marty um, deserves some compensation for this, and I just don't know how this is going to play out. Like if I was to to speculate miles i think that this is probably going to get settled out of court and we'll never hear about what those terms were ever again i think that's probably going to be the best result um we can hope for as far as mick damaging his reputation i understand how he probably feels about it but i think mick's respected and uh, amazing and talented enough that i think he could probably you know walk in any studio and and pitch a soundtrack and still get the job i don't think this has really hurt him and his brand in any way but having said that you know um the man obviously is, is very much hurting on this one and i do i do i do feel for him and i do hope that um there is some resolution here obviously yeah and like you said i don't think we'll ever get the satisfying answers that we want in a lot of these situations we obviously just came off the back of the Hel helena taylor bayonetta 3 controversy yeah. and that was another very public spat where she came out and basically accused platinum games of offering her terrible compensation and then they came back and said all right well here's actually what happened and we had jason schreier talk to developers or talk to people within platinum games who would have information that said no 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 that's not the account here that's not actually how this played out and so obviously you know, people are human. I'm not going to say that Mick Gordon is lying. I don't believe that he would come out on this public forum and double oh, down. No, no. I no, mean, no, no. even yeah. even though people are like, well, Hel Helena did. She distorted the truth. And right. we're all going to distort the truth in a certain sense because our realities are all different. Our realities, how we interpret situations, how we interpret these deals, that's based on how we feel about the matter. And I don't think Mick Gordon is lying about how he feels on this. And... You know, not to really, you know, say that he was everything, but when you think of Doom 2016, I would say the first thing that people mention is the soundtrack. Oh, Doom, yeah. Doom 2016, that soundtrack hit. There are modern acts in hardcore and metal that rip off Mick Gordon's sound and style from the Doom 2016 soundtrack. That soundtrack was phenomenal, incredible. So he established that. People wanted more of that with Doom Eternal. And again, you're in a situation where he wants to, to deliver on that. He's getting pushed into these deadlines he's not happy with. There's all this stuff that comes to a head. And then somebody comes out and says, it's your fault. You did this. You did this. And, and I'm sure when you're working hard and at a certain point, you, you want to be compensated for your work. And what your value is, is, you know, probably subjective in a lot of ways. But ultimately, 
when we see more and more of these public spats, when we see more and more of these key figures come out and say, I'm not happy with what I'm paid, that I think that points to some underlying issues with how we're compensating creators, developers in the space and what their worth is. Because, you know, some people want it to be a simple, all right, I'm going to give you this X amount, X dollars per track and then peace, good luck, be on your way. And some yeah. people are saying, well, hey, hey, like 20, look at 2016. Like my, my music was a fundamental part of that experience. And I don't think it's fair that you're going to try to downplay that or take that away from me. So I don't know. I'm a little exhausted with how public these kind of spats have become. And again, like, I don't know what we're supposed to do with Bethesda's statement here. I don't, I don't know what, what, when they posted that online, what were they expecting us to do with that? See you in court. I think that's what they're saying. <laughs> That's come, what it come, reads like, just a bunch come, of threats. Yeah, come for us. You know, we, we got our receipts. We're ready to go. We got our 45 lawyers. Let, let, we'll, we'll, we'll take you on. I think that's what it comes down to. But look, Miles, at the end of the day, I think for me, like you said, you said you, you felt exhausted. And I do as well because these stories, they always come up. But um, I will always advocate for um, contractors, consultants, people that work with a company, not at a company to be appropriately credited and compensated for the work they do. Just because Mick Gordon, I don't know the exact number, but let's say if he did 20 songs for Doom Eternal and only two of them were used, he should still be, uh, he should still be paid for the 20 songs that he worked on because he's doing the job that you asked him to do. Whether you decided that you selected only two of his works in the final game, that's on you. That's on the publisher. That's on, you know, that's, that's a different conversation. But the actual work that he produced whether it was uh, on the game that shipped or not should be irrelevant. He should still be compensated. And that's one thing that I've seen, and this came up with Metroid Dread like over a year ago where there was some studios that worked um, that were not credited uh, in, with uh with you know with that game there were some developers there were some qa people that um had worked on metroid dread but had left um what's the studio mercury mercury, mercury steam something. mercury steam thank you um that worked at mercury steam uh in the qa department and didn't get credited for it or they worked um as a developer on metroid dread but only worked for let's say six months right um, and apparently that's some type of cutoff to say that that's not enough time for you to hit the credits my thing is anyone, whether you are currently at a company or you worked on a game and you left the company, you're a consultant, uh, you're a contractor, it doesn't matter. If you had any hand in in that particular game, games development, then you should be appropriately credited. And that's that's one area that I really want the industry to get better at. And look, I think Bethesda should have credited Marty appropriately um, and he should be compensated for all the work that he did for Doom Eternal, whether that is something that um, was on the disc when it came out or or not, it doesn't matter. He should he should be you know credited and compensated. I totally agree. I think that six months. A lot of this comes down to technicalities. When when you look at contractor and publisher developer relationships, there's a lot of things in contracts that say we own this. You yeah. you don't own this. You are producing something for us that we own. You're relinquishing all of these rights and these exceptions. And so then, like you said, with the Mercury Steam situation and Metroid Dread, people who worked on the game for months and months don't get credit for it. And we saw people coming out online and saying, hey, I worked on Metroid Dread, but you wouldn't know because my name is not in the credits because I right. didn't work there for six months. And I think, yeah, that is a huge glaring example of how these dynamics, how these big companies, because let's be real, Bethesda is huge. 
like you said, they, they have a huge number of lawyers standing by ready to use these technicalities to try to make Mick Gordon look awful. And if they can make Mick Gordon look awful in a court of law, then they win. Sorry, yeah. you don't get anything. And that's, you know, as much as the law, we hope that it abides by the truth and the reality of the situation. There's a lot of technicalities that can, I don't know, skew how that's presented to the public. People not in the know with the, with the situation. So, yeah, it's the games industry relies so heavily on contract work. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely some conversations worth being had about how do we alter that in a way that benefits everyone? Because yeah, it's yeah, one-sided a little bit. I agree. And look, I hope Mick finds what he's looking for. Yeah, I hope he gets the result he needs, uh, he wants. Um, I mean, he's awesome. And I want to I see more of his work in video games. I would hate for him to step away from video games after this. I wouldn't blame him if he did, because uh, he obviously is very hurt about this. And, and again, you know, I, I definitely understand but I, I want to hopefully feel like he's he's gonna you know move on from this and and um, hopefully we'll hear his we'll, we'll hear his his chops in other games going forward because I, I I'm a big fan a huge fan dude dude yeah. rips like his yeah. performance what was it at the game awards oh yeah that, man that was one that was of the legendary. best oh legendary. so good the dude kills it and he writes great music puts out great work and yeah it's it's I'm sure he feels really disappointed and frustrated by the way that this is all played out because like i said this wasn't that post came out and he it sounds like at first he reached out behind the scenes to be like hey what's what's going on here and he just wanted a lot of it was he just wanted that reddit post down because he felt that the reddit post damaged his reputation and now it's escalated into this whole he said she said all right see you in court type situation on a public forum and all of us have to stand on the sidelines and watch mommy and daddy fight about (laughs) about this (laughs) <laughs> and it's it's unfortunate. Blue Moon have seen the chat saying he should get together with Double Fine for a new brutal legend. Ship it. I'm, oh, I'm all about that. Ship I'm, it. Oh, I'm all about that. Yeah, Tim. I know Tim. You're busy. You're probably working on some other stuff. But I know you have a soft spot for brutal legend. I know Jack Black, the goat, one of the just sweetest, nicest dudes ever, would be down to do brutal legend too in a heartbeat. All right. So. Oh yeah. Let's go. Let's make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I want to give a quick shout out to everyone joining us live on youtube.com slash Miles Dompierre. If you were digging the show, hit that like button, share it out, subscribe to the channel, all of that good stuff. And now we got to talk a little bit about Call of Duty exclusivity, boy. Oh, a favorite topic. Oh, Love this. bring it in. Yeah, <laughs> let's go. All right, another week means another conversation about Call of Duty exclusivity. Um, all right, so obviously there's been a very public string of developments regarding Microsoft's proposed acquisition of Activision Blizzard King, ABK. People get annoyed when I say Activision Blizzard King, but I like to. It's just, it's so much. It's such a mouthful. Um, <laughs> so Phil Spencer appeared on the Verge's podcast, the the Decoder podcast, to discuss the future of the company, the deal, how they want to grow into the mobile space. So there's a lot of interesting nuggets about what the future of Microsoft looks like. I would recommend checking out the full interview if you haven't. There's a lot of great context. I love listening to Phil Spencer speak. He's very deliberate with his words, which I appreciate because he has to be in those situations. Mm -hmm. And I love when he's on podcasts because, you know, normally when he posts something online, you know, he's got a team that he has to consult. He has to be like on edge, ready, like, all right. But on a podcast, it's a different space. So he has to like... Think for a second, uh, how can I phrase this without getting myself in trouble, without getting Xbox in trouble? (laughs) So very deliberate and very important how these things are phrased. So 
as a part of this conversation. Phil Spencer, once and for all, again, confirmed <laughs> what exclusivity would look like for Call of Duty. And I love this interview because the, the host was probing questions like, all right, so is this going to be only via Xbox Game Pass? Is this only going to be via the cloud? Like, how are you going to do this? And Phil Spencer just blatantly said, no, there's no catch. We're not going to trick you. You're going to be able to play Call of Duty natively on PlayStation. As you know it now, there's not going to be exclusive stuff on Xbox. We're not going to make you jump through some hoops. You can just play Call of Duty. And so it was funny to have him just, you could tell he was just frustrated with the question and, and the amount of times he's asked the questions and how the community speculates on, on what that means. So essentially, Phil Spencer is saying, as long as Call of Duty exists as we know it, Call of Duty will be on PlayStation if this deal closes. So do you think Xbox genuinely intends to keep Call of Duty on PlayStation in perpetuity? Mm, yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I don't think Phil would, would, would reiterate and double down and triple down and quadruple down on the same message over and over again unless you know, that was that was to be the case. Look, it's very easy to say that what's going to happen in 10 years after this, um, what's going to happen to Call of Duty on, let's say, PlayStation? The answer is we don't really know. I mean, we think that it's going to continue. But look, I don't know how many times Phil has to say the same thing over and over again for people to, to get it. And I think there's definitely some suspicion there um, that his words are, like you said, carefully crafted mm -hmm. to make sure that he doesn't get in any trouble. But look, I do think he, he believes this. And I think the reason why um, Microsoft is more than happy to continue Call of Duty on PlayStation in perpetuity is because while it is a, a big deal, it's a very big deal, it's not the only thing that um, is important to Microsoft here. I think there's other factors of this acquisition that they're very much interested in. There's obviously the Blizzard side. There's the, the, Warcraft, the World of Warcraft, the Diablo 4 stuff. There's... There's all that stuff, right? Um, there's also the King side, the mobile side, where there is so much untapped potential there for Microsoft to basically assume control of um, a very, very profitable mobile side that is not really sexy in terms of media coverage because, you know, it's mobile stuff. But I guarantee you there is a lot of money to be made on the mobile side. And so it's, it's look, I, I think if, if, you know, Microsoft does concede Call of Duty and they do agree that it will be on PlayStation in perpetuity, as long as they call the shots, I mean, I still think it's going to be day one on Game Pass, but it'll still be on the PlayStation 5 um, on the same day. I, you know, um, I don't think it's, it's, I mean, it's important, yes, but it's not the most important thing for this acquisition. And I think, you know, there, there will be some concession, concessions made for this deal to go through, and I think this is definitely one of them. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to talk about the amount of times and the, the, the number of different ways that Phil Spencer is required to explain what this deal yeah. means for Xbox, what it's going to mean for Call of Duty. And the reality is there are there's a small fraction of people who are really fixating on that. There's a, he alludes to in this interview that he doesn't outright say it's PlayStation, but he says something to the effect of, well, Nintendo's not interested, or Nintendo, you know, we're going to bring Nintendo to, or we're going to bring Call of Duty to Nintendo platforms. So he kind of alludes to the fact that the Call of Duty thing is not really a big factor of what this is about. Like you said, this is more about the, the mobile side of things, growing into that mobile space, what that means for the cadence of their subscription services like Xbox Game Pass. And it's not really about taking games away, quote unquote. It's about 
you know, leveraging games to make their platform more enticing. And that's really what a business is all about. And I don't see a, a more legitimate, healthy way to compete than to do it that way, where it's, yeah. you're not locking things behind a wall. You're not taking things away from anyone else. You were just saying, all right, here's an option. And this option just happens to be, when it comes to the value proposition, pretty hard to beat. I think that's where you want to be as a business. And I think that's kind of the, the fruit that they're looking at for this ac acquisition. And that's why they're looking to spend $69 billion on it. Um, yeah. One final question on Call of Duty. If you had free reign with this deal, there was no regulation, restrictions, nothing. How would you handle Call of Duty exclusivity? Would you keep it multi-plat or would you for a little way? I'd take it. I'd take it exclusive. Honestly. Oh! I, yeah, I would take it exclusive. Okay, what's your reasoning yeah. for that? Let's hear it. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I think you're taking games from the gamers, MBG. Yeah, you're yeah, a villain. I, I have, I have both. I will say, I have, all, I have everything. So I have the Switch, the PS5, and the Xbox. But look, I, I would probably take it exclusive and and make it game, you know, make it available on Game Pass day one. And the reason why is simply because. I think that Sony, you know, they have their fair share of exclusivity on their games. Obviously, Final Fantasy is, is one, um, Seven Remake, and and other games like that that they've they've taken exclusivity deals around. So I think it's just business, man. You know, um, you know, if you've got the the option to take it, then I would take it, and 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 that's that. You know, like I think at the end of the day, um, it's not really um, something that I feel like. Sony would be too happy with if, if that was the case. But I also feel like it, you know, they, they do very similar things, you know, yes, uh, yes, with, they with do. their games. And I think this is just one that, that if, if it was available to Microsoft, that they would have probably taken it. But obviously I don't think that's going to happen at this time. Yes. PlayStation arguably has built a, a reputation and a strong platform around the idea of, you know, locking third-party content away. We, we yeah. know it's it, they have a track record of it. They're not shy for doing it. And a lot of people, I think, fairly call PlayStation's concerns about this deal out in that regards. Like, well, it's not fair when you do it. You know, it's, it's how we built the PlayStation 4 to what, the, to what it was, but we don't want anyone else doing it. Um, but that being said, I, I agree. A lot of people agree with you in the sense that you could take this exclusive. You could use it to leverage your platform in a very aggressive way. When you mm -hmm. lock down Call of Duty, which it just did a billion dollars in a couple days. It's just, it's a juggernaut that won't quit. We had people saying, oh, Vanguard flopped the series. It's dead. No one cares about Call of Duty. And then the next year they come in and put the biggest selling Call of Duty ever out. So clearly there's still some weight there. And clearly if you're Xbox, you could leverage that. You can make that exclusive and you say, bam, you want to play Call of Duty? You have to play it right here. Sorry. Dems yeah. to breaks, gamers. Yeah. But I, I don't think it's that much worse uh, for Microsoft that they do give it to Sony. But again, if they offer on Game Pass day one and they still have the PlayStation version available on day one, which they will, I mean, I think that's good enough for Microsoft to say, look, Game Pass is, is the best value in gaming. We got Call of Duty on day one. Jump on it right now. You can play it immediately. And you know, if they have, I think that's the most important thing for them. It doesn't necessarily matter if it's running on on PlayStation Five hardware um, for them. I think they still win as a result of this. Even though you know, I personally, again, I would, I would keep it exclusive. If if there was a way to do it, I would do it. Uh, call me Mister Kumbaya if you want, um, but 
if it was my call, I would I would keep it multi-platform simply okay. for what it means for the the raw amounts of money that you get. Because mm -hmm. we know that Call of Duty would still sell incredibly well as an exclusive. But I think it's safe to say that maybe potentially it wouldn't hit the same numbers having, you know, a, a smaller pool. There wouldn't be a 100% conversion rate of people buying an Xbox and playing Call of Duty. I think that's safe to assume. But if you use Call of Duty like you use Minecraft as this business vessel, this business vessel, which then you can use those resources, that infinite stream of cash to invest in other projects, I think that is going to open up more possibilities for new IP. I think that's going to open up new possibilities for sequels to, to franchises that normally wouldn't exist, that people have been yep. wanting. And I think yep. it's going to allow you to be in a position where you have the ultimate revenue stream and you can use that revenue stream to supplement your business, to supplement Xbox Game Pass in a way that just doesn't exist currently. Because there's not real, there aren't many franchises that carry the same weight and, and selling power of Call of Duty. So for me, I, if I'm running the show at Xbox, I'm looking at Call of Duty, I'm saying this is just, this is a money horse. I'm going to use that money to invest elsewhere and we're just going to keep Call of Duty as it is outside of annual releases. I really hope annual, annual releases for Call of Duty are dead post this acquisition. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's the best for that team. And that would allow some of these other developers to spread their wings and actually make games that aren't Call of Duty. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess the last thing I'll say about why I'd like it to be exclusive to Xbox is you kind of touched on it, but it, it also kind of breeds competition. You know, Sony right now, um, there is no, there's no SOCOM game. There's no kill zone. You know, there's no resistance. I mean, it would be awesome if um they could revisit those franchises and and offer up some of those amazing games i mean i love socom i used to play the hell out of socom back in the day i i would love to see a new socom game and i feel like because call of duty does exist it, it seems like it's not something that may, is as as important to the playstation brand potentially and that could just be you know a throwaway guess i don't know but i don't know like i think you know if you make a disruptive change like that it forces other companies to compete and i ultimately would like to see that happen but you know yeah I'm, that's I'm, that's I'm, why game pass exists game pass absolutely. exists because xbox was getting stomped they right. were being real they were not doing very hot and they had to do something innovative groundbreaking and radical to be like all right how do we get people interested in xbox right now yeah i agree um and look i'm not unhappy um whichever way this goes i think I think the deal will get signed. Um, obviously, there's you know there's resistance from like the CMA and there's other groups mm -hmm. that right now. But I think this is really just more due diligence type stuff. I don't think it's much to do about anything. I think the deal will go through. Um, but yeah, Call of Duty will re remain multi-platform in perpetuity, as far as I can you know can assume in this one. Yeah, I'm I'm of the mindset that either way. Um, I do assume it'll be multi-platform for the foreseeable future. Either way, I'm going to be playing it on Xbox Game Pass. That, it doesn't change how I would consume it, unless there are aggressive concessions for whatever reason that say, all right, you can't put Call of Duty in Game Pass. And then I wonder if Microsoft would even do it. Would they go through with that deal if that was the level of concessions that they had to make? That's a real good question. Um, because I imagine that's that's yeah. the get, that's the selling point. And if you take yeah. that away, do you even bother? That's a good question. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe. And again, it, it all depends on 
everything else that they would get as part of this deal. Like I said, the mo the mobile side is obviously something that is not really talked about as much, but I think there's a lot of money to be made there as well. It really just depends on everything other than Call of Duty, what that looks like as far as the bottom line on the books, as far as how much revenue that they would generate year on year type of thing. But um, I think if I was to guess, if, if Call of Duty was off the table for Game Pass, that that would be something that Microsoft would be like, ooh, I don't know. Maybe maybe we need to, you know, rethink this one a little more and and potentially, I'm not saying walk away from the deal, but it would be it would be a pretty big deal if they couldn't get game Call of Duty on Game Pass. Yeah. So let me I'll I'll play devil's advocate with this situation. Phil Spencer's saying Call of Duty isn't, you know, that's not the thing you should be focusing about focusing mm -hmm. on. That's not what we're focusing on. But if it comes to a head and they say that no, if we can't have Call of Duty and Game Pass, then we don't want this deal. Then it kind of suggests that maybe Call of Duty was a big piece of this this pie here. Yeah. Well, I mean, Phil. I think Phil's just being. Um, I'm not saying he's playing down Call of Duty's importance because that would be, you know, silly to do that. But I think he's very smart the way he talks. You know, and that yeah, is I agree. Look, there is there is a lot there is a lot of meat on the bone on this deal, and you're focusing on one one piece of it right like there is a lot more here that that is not as not talked about as much it's all about call of duty it's all about call of duty but there is so much more here that we are so much more interested in you know um but to your point miles i think yeah if call of duty was off the table for game pass oh they they may take another look at the deal and say was it really worth the, the 60 million or whatever or 60 billion that whatever we paid for it maybe not you know yeah like Phil Spencer, he's looking at this bird. He's like, Call of Duty's a thigh. You're missing out on the succulent breasts <laughs> right. that, are, that are king yeah. and all these other I'm, IP that we're sitting on. I'm a, I'm a leg man, so, you know. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but yeah, I don't, again, I think when we talk about what's good for the consumer, obviously it's Game Pass is easy to advocate for the customer because it's a barrier to entry that's affordable for a lot of people and it gets them in the door. So really, I feel like if that was a concession, that would be to appease other competitors more than the consumers. And again, a lot of these agencies are designed to look out for what's best for the consumer fundamentally. Mm -hmm. So I can't imagine that that would be the level of concessions, but who knows? Yeah, I don't think so. Um, I, like I said, I think it's going to be every, I, I, it's going to be exactly the same as it is in today's world, other than the fact that you'll be able to play it on Game Pass. All right, we got a super chat, quote, super chat. Again, if things are a little different, while I work to get the channel monetized, all of that good stuff, you know, we, I've set up a Streamlabs little tip jar here where you can ask your questions, drop your comments. So we got one from Bonkster here who says, the real question is, when are we getting another super bonk and when are you doing an episode on it? MVG, are you a super bonk fan? I, I am. I love super bonk. It's awesome. Okay. All uh, right. When, when am I doing an episode? Is he talking to me or is he talking to you? Are you a I, Bonk I, fan? I'm, <laughs> I'm infamously not a huge Bonk fan, but okay. um, I feel like 90% of the chat has no idea what Super Bonk is. <laughs> Super Bonk is a, a 2D side scroller um, that came out, I think, back in the SNES um, years and years ago. I think it also came out for the Turbo Graphics 16. Uh, it's it's an awesome game. Um, Bonk's Adventure and 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 all that sort of stuff. 
Um, am I going to do an episode on it? I don't really know. Uh, that's more of a DF retro, I will say, that like my good friend John Lenneman would probably do at some point. Yeah, but, John, um, get on yeah. Superbonk. Let's go. Yeah, I, I may take a look at it. I may take a look at it. There we go. Love that. Um, all right. Again, huge shout out to everyone joining us live. If you missed the intro to the show and you're watching live, things are a little different. We're hosting on youtube.com slash milesdompierre versus youtube.com slash Gaming, And I appreciate everyone coming along for the ride. Another part of the podcast, the Decoder podcast with on Verge, talked about the Keystone and why the Keystone was ultimately shelved. Uh, Jez from Windows Central was reported on it. It's something we've talked about on the show before, but Xbox was looking to make a streaming-only Xbox companion device that was very affordable, and you could access Xbox Cloud Gaming on it, connected to anything with an HDMI TV, and immerse yourself in the Xbox ecosystem. So, according to Phil... He is saying that the reason that it is shelved temporarily is because they couldn't hit the price point. It was coming higher than they wanted it to be, and it sounds like they were targeting about $100 was, was the goal here. And what they had, the iteration that was infamously on Phil's shelf, wasn't that. They weren't able to hit that target price point. With Xbox coming to more TVs, browsers, any device we already have, does the idea of a streaming-only box interest you all that much? Personally, for me, it doesn't because, you know, I'm, I'm someone that likes just physical media and, and just, you know, downloading uh, digital games and, and playing them kind of natively on, on target hardware. But look, you can't, you can't turn a blind eye to this stuff. The cloud, you know, is here. xCloud is, is a, a, a good service that's still being refined right now. Microsoft is obviously investing a lot of money and time into this. They have, you know millions and millions of Azure farms around the world right now that that can can host this stuff. You know, the infrastructure is is on point as we know. Um so it makes a lot of sense for them to continue to make strides in the world of of the cloud. Look, this Keystone device is interesting because I think there is a you know a, a market for something like this. But Phil is Phil Spencer is absolutely on point that I think something like this, I would almost even argue that $99 uh, is too expensive for something like this. I, I would almost see if you could get it lower than that. Um, and ultimately, I think he made the right call in that it's still not quite time yet to uh, unveil something like this, especially when, yeah, you know, if you're going to, let's say, you know, they got it down to $125 and, and, and they sold that, that would be a hard sell especially when you can basically get a Series S for $250 these days. Um, so I think, look, I think, you know, um, a, a system like this is interesting. There's definitely a market for it. They made the right choice in kind of holding it back. They, they haven't really held it back because nothing was actually announced officially. But um, I do think that Phil's right and that this needs to come down in price a little more before it can be competitive as as a cloud device we saw what happened with stadia um you know was was a disaster for them there are other services amazon luna is one obviously nvidia has their own service as well x cloud is is um microsoft's thing but yeah look i think um you know they, they made the right choice waiting and you know if this if this thing did come out I, i'd probably buy one and check it out i think yeah. it would be kind of cool to see what it's doing because it's it's specifically targeting cloud gaming so there's there's definitely some hardware in there that's that's kind of really pushing um you know the 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 um the packets that kind of come 
come into the system and get pushed out. So there's obviously some really uh, optimized types of networking type uh, functionality in there. But ultimately, I think they made the right choice. It's it's a passing curiosity for me right now, but hopefully we'll hear about it, you know, over the next couple of years and it will actually come out to market because I'd like to I'd like to see it in action. I think it'd be really cool. Yeah, because when we look at price points right now, if this was above $100, we have the yeah. Series S right now, 250 bucks. I think Target's even giving you a $50 gift card, I think, in the yep. U.S. if you buy it. So it's essentially 200 bucks right now for somebody to go get a Series S, which is, that is a amazing deal in of itself. And you get all of those cloud gaming capabilities built in there. And so it would be a harder sell, I think, to be like, okay, you can spend 150 on this for example, and you yeah. can get the controller, you can stream games, or you can pay $100 more, theoretically, and get a Series S and have everything else that you could do on this platform. So for me, when this device launches, it needs to be the perfect price point and it needs to have a, a stellar experience because... Yeah, it has to just work, doesn't it? it you, can't, you can't be fiddling around with network connectivity tests and, and you know, um, setting up your your router and opening ports and just, you know, stuff like that. You have to just be able to turn the thing on, sign into your Xbox live account and go, you know, um, and that's it. And I think, I mean, they probably understand, you know, the user experience has to be on point, like you said, Miles, and that's something they're actively probably working on right now to, to ensure that that is the case. Because they're really only going to get one chance with the average customer right now. Yeah. Xbox cloud gaming is a great option on your your PC or your phone, you can you can go in and you can supplement what you already own. But if you're going to release a device that is only designed to do one thing and somebody goes into a store, they go into their Target, they buy it and they take it home and the experience isn't great, I yeah. don't think moving forward they're going to be that interested in Xbox Cloud Gaming. If they bought yeah. the dedicated streaming device and the experience wasn't that great, that's it's going to have the inverse effect because I think ultimately this is designed to get more adoption. They want a, a low, a hyper, hyper low cost barrier to entry to the Xbox ecosystem that works well and shows you all the great games, blah, 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 gets you subbed to Xbox Game Pass, all of that great stuff. And if the experience yeah. isn't great, it's not going to really increase their market share in a notable way. Agree. And they have to be very, very transparent about what this system is doing and who it's t marketed for and who it's targeting because it's easier to say hey you can enjoy xbox games from anywhere uh, with this one little device you can take it with you and play anywhere you want but the reality is that is not true at all if you're on crappy mcdonald's wi-fi or <laughs> hotel wi-fi it's not going to work it's going to no. it's going to be a horrible experience so you know uh it would really be great for them um to suggest that look this is going to work really well for you if you have this minimum level of bandwidth uh, up, upload and download speed, you know, um, because if you just market it as play your Xbox games anywhere with this one cool device, there are a lot of people are going to have, like you said, Miles, a really bad first experience. And that's enough for people to be like, this is a piece of plastic. I'm going to return this because it doesn't work. So I think they're aware of those things. And I think that's one of the reasons why Phil has kind of mentioned that it's still very much in the uh, R&D phase right now. They're still trying to figure out how it's going to work. But, you know, I think they, they know all that stuff. And ultimately, I'd like to see it come out. I think it would be a really cool piece of tech when it does. Exactly. It would be a great supplement for people who don't want to buy a new TV. I see some people mentioning that in the chat. And that, mm -hmm. yeah, that I think is who this is targeted for. People who maybe have an Xbox or maybe want to try out Xbox 
and don't want to buy a Samsung 2021 or, or newer television to be able to experience it. It will, I imagine, roll out to more and more TVs, more devices, more models. But I think at a certain point, there's going to be a hard cutoff where if you don't have a TV that's this age, you can't experience it. But you can buy this device, you can plug it into an HDMI port, and bam, you're good to go. Yep. I do agree that they need to be very transparent with, you need this speed. You need this speed if you want this experience. And if you don't have this speed, it's not yeah. going to be fun. Right. Not going to be fun for you. And I hope mm -hmm. that they're honest about that. We saw that with Google Stadia, but Google Stadia really undersold the bandwidth. They're, they're, the graph that they put out that said you could do 4K and you could do 1080 at this bandwidth, that was really skewed. Technically, sure, you could get that, but they needed well, they to add to, a lot to that. Well, the Stadia was interesting because they weren't, they were throwing around all these kind of buzzwords talking about reducing latency and, and negative lag and all this sort of stuff that was going around. Look, gamers and, and, and customers aren't, aren't dummies, you know, especially when it comes to cloud. People have internet at home. They know exactly the capabilities of their ISP, what it can do, what it can't do. They know their uploads and download speeds. Trying to tell people, you know, ours is the best because latency is reduced. Stuff like that is is just marketing fluff. Um, you know, I, I want to see something like this come out. I think the cloud is a, it is a cool um, side product, or it complements the main the main hardware. But it, like you said, Nate, uh, Miles, just you know, be transparent and, and just let people know exactly what this is and what it's not, you know, and I think that will go a long way to, you know, making customers feel a lot happier about a service like this. And I think that's one of the reasons why Stadia ultimately, I mean, Stadia had a lot of issues, but it's one of the reasons why I feel like Stadia did not survive. The tech was, was fantastic. I think the Stadia tech, the streaming tech is actually, out of all the ones I've tried, including xCloud is probably the best one that, that that's around. But as we saw it, it didn't it didn't survive. Um, but hopefully Keystone will be a good gap in the market for Microsoft. I think it will be. And yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll see it come out in a couple of years. Yeah, you, you bring up an excellent point. Uh, having that trust with your, your customer is very important. And I think that's the main difference when we look at the success of Xbox Cloud Gaming versus Stadia. Xbox mm -hmm. Cloud Gaming, I commend the team because they came out and said, you can experience this, but this is a beta. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, they'll let you try some stuff for free really early on to say, all right, this is definitely a beta. You can try it out. Here's, you know, we got some kinks to work out as opposed to Stadia, which had the, the big launch. It had the hard big launch and they, they sold you on this idea. They had a date and they shipped it. And when they yeah. shipped it on this big official launch, it was not that tight. A lot of people had issues. And that's why a lot of people, I think, were like, oh, this doesn't work well. And then from that point on, they just associated Stadia with not working that well. And like you said, yeah. the tech of Stadia was fantastic. When things worked well, you had a great connection. It was a great experience. But they had that big rollout, and that big rollout had a bunch of negative PR. And the mm -hmm. average person only saw the, the negative headlines and negative reports about what this tech is and just moved on and said, all right, I don't care about this. Yeah, try, trying to tell gamers that you're going to disrupt the industry with cloud technology is is not a good idea like we we all know what what the cloud can do and what it can't do it's a great value add to the current landscape of video games and yes. i don't think it's ever going to replace um you know the way that we play video games going forward in the foreseeable future no 
it is, like you said, a great complimentary option right now. But for the average person, it is not, it cannot be a replacement. And I think mm -hmm. that is where people like Stadia misread the possibilities. Sure, if you live in San Francisco, you can probably have a great Stadia experience. If you live anywhere in the middle of the United States, Stadia yeah. is not an option for you. Mm -hmm. So it's important. You touched on this a little bit, but another section of this interview spoke about King, about the mobile side of things and how really, like you said, that is where things get interesting for Phil Spencer and company about the future. Um, Phil Spencer touched on what it means, what it opens up and how the company wants to be nimble. So let me read a quick quote from this interview about the Activision deal and what the mobile mobile component of this deal means. From Phil Spencer, in terms of the Activision opportunity, I keep saying this over and over, and it's true. It definitely starts with the view that people want to play games on every device that they have. In a funny way, the smallest screen that we play on is actually the biggest screen when you think about the install base in a phone. That's just a place where if we don't gain relevancy as a gaming brand, over time, the business will become un untenable. So Phil Spencer here is suggesting that they don't really have the option to ignore the mobile side of gaming. He talks about the, the growth. There's the, the infamous comments about Microsoft trying to reach the billions of gamers around the world. So what do you think is Xbox's biggest opportunity in the mobile space in regards to King, the King component of this? Well, I think it's Call of Duty Mobile, right? I mean, Ooh. Isn't, isn't that the, the low-hanging fruit here? They, uh, King uh, develops and, and owns Call of Duty Mobile that makes a lot of money. Um, and honestly, I think this is something that Sony really isn't that interested in at this time. Like, I think it's all about, for Sony, it's all about Call of Duty on consoles, right? Um, so I think that's their biggest opportunity. And, you know, again, King um, is makes a lot of money for, for Activision. So I think this is Microsoft's kind of plan to really enter this space. So I think, you know, for me, it has to be has to be Call of Duty as as the the, the big wild card for the big draw card for uh, Microsoft when they when they take this active uh, the, when they make this acquisition actually happen. Because we know they've dabbled, they've done Gears Pop, they've had some mm -hmm. some Forza games as well on mobile. So they've they've dipped their toes in the water and they've tried to build up mobile. But I think when they look at King, that's already an established thing that people know, people play on. It makes money. So it's a lot easier to integrate that than it is to fundamentally build something new from the ground up. And again, Call of Duty. It's all coming back to Call of Duty in the end. That is a huge IP. Call of Duty oh, yeah. Mobile is a huge phenomenon that makes a lot of money. Um, so that is a big component of it for sure. I mean, and I think the other thing we have to be very mindful of is we have to, I mean, Microsoft knows that its big competition is going to be like the Google Play Store and the App Store and all that stuff, right? Um you know, so they need to come up with some type of way, potentially where they can offer better revenue splits um, from its, you know, from people that want to develop on Xbox mobile platform, for example. Um, I, I know I'm kind of deviating a little bit away from the King acquisition, but you know, if they are making strides to get into the mobile space, those are the kind of things that they have to be thinking about, and I'm sure they are. But look, the, at the end of the day, this acquisition, as we mentioned. It's not just about Call of Duty on, on console. There is a lot here. There's a lot of meat on the bone, as we mentioned, and mobile probably is one third of, 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 the, you know, of the meat that, that, that we're talking about here. So um, I think you know, they are making a lot of inroads to ensure that they have a, a foothold in the mobile space when this acquisition goes through. I mean, they'll, 
they know about it, um, but they also have to compete with Apple and they have to compete with Google Play and, and, and all that. And that's, you know, that's that's a very, very interesting and very competitive market to get in. But I think they have the tools they need to actually get there with with this King acquisition. I think that positions them a lot better. And we've seen the filings for them tr basically trademarking, patenting a a store, a, a mobile storefront. Mm -hmm. So you know they're interested in it and you know they're trying to position themselves to have a worthwhile offering. Because we all know, rest in power to the Windows phone, we all know what happened when they launched a a service and an ecosystem that didn't that wasn't widely supported. Uh, and there was was the drama, I think Google blocked YouTube on the Windows mm -hmm. phone, so there were some That's competitors right. saying, "We don't even want you in this space. We're not going to give you the video app. If you don't have YouTube, I'm sorry, how are you supposed to ex exist in the space? If people aren't <laughs> going to just go somewhere else. It's just so established." But that being said, yeah, Microsoft is going to step into the Thunderdome with the Google Play Store and iTunes. And that's oof, yeah. the Apple Store. And that's that's crazy. That That is such a seemingly insurmountable challenge for them. So I'm interested to see how they approach it, you know, post this deal. And then if this deal doesn't go through, what is their answer to that? Do, do I mean, they have an answer? Well, that, I mean, that, that's the million dollar question. I mean, the only way we can we can kind of speculate on how this is going to go for Microsoft is take a look at the, uh, the, the Bethesda acquisition when that happened. And again, I know they're two separate entities, completely different scenarios, but when Microsoft acquired Bethesda, it was pretty much business as usual for Bethesda. Nothing has really changed other than the fact that Microsoft is the parent company. You still have Starfield, you still have, you know, uh, Todd Howard, you still have um, Pete Hines running the show, you know, all that stuff is still there, right? Nothing has really changed. I'd, I'd like to think that the first couple of years of this acquisition, when it goes through, I think Microsoft is probably mostly going to be observing and letting things go the way things have been going and not really messing around too much with, you know, with, with all the current ways that things are being developed, including the mobile space but behind the scenes like you said they're they're ramping up the xbox um store on on mobile they're they're making more deals they're they're signing up more mobile um developers for mobile games they're still bringing out call of duty mobile Warzone, candy crush um minecraft i think is also on mobile as well those things are going to make money and they're going to continue to bring money in and I think, you know, um, they know that they need to, they can't just sit back and just collect all the revenue from those games. While it's it's very, um, I guess there is, a, a, you know, there is a desire to do that. Microsoft has always wanted to break into the mobile space. And this is, this is, this is the way to do it, man. Like you acquire mm -hmm. King, you get, you get COD, you get Warzone, you get Candy Crush. Now it's time, you know, you're on the launching pad. Now it's time to to really just, you know, take take this rocket ship and, and go. So I think that's what they're going to do. Let's go. Now's your chance, Microsoft, to get into the arena and compete. And again, it'll be interesting to see once this deal closes. I think the European Commission announced that their deadline was extended to April. So now it'll be probably closer to April before we get resolution on this deal. Um, but I ultimately am going to be very excited when this is done one way or the other obviously I'm, I'm sick of talking about it honestly like every 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 week there's a new new thing you know it's um, I, i'm with you it's ex again spoke with us it's exhausting all right it's yeah 
I don't <laughs> need to see every single little detail development vocal like that. But, you know, it's the big question. It's the biggest deal in gaming history. And so obviously, as long as it's, you know, up up in the air, there's going to be questions about it. And people like Phil Spencer are going to have to go on shows and answer those questions. All right. What's happening, Phil? What's this mean for me and my my PlayStation? <laughs> <laughs> Very well said. Uh, <laughs> MVG, let's have fun. Chat, if you're here hanging out, having a good time, hit the like button, share it out. We're going to be talking about the Game Awards because this week, Jeff Keighley and company officially announced the nominees for the 2022 Game Awards. So 31 categories in total. We are not covering all 31 categories. I'll tell you that right now. That would be, we'd be here for hours. But we are going to touch on a couple of key categories. So I would say arguably some of the biggest categories. And we're going to play a little game here. Because, you know, as is tradition, after these nominees came out, everyone was fighting about who should win, who shouldn't be on this list, who should be on this list, how it's rigged, all of the, the typical fanfare that comes with the Game Awards. <laughs> so we're going to have some fun, and we're going to go through these categories. And the twist is, I am going to read off the official nominees as, as, as picked by the panel at the Game Awards. And we are going to have, you and I both are going to have one option from this list. We can A, add one game, B, remove one game, or B, swap one game on this list. Okay. okay. Those, those are the rules. And those are, that's the playground that we have to work with when it comes to these awards. So if you're in the chat, want to play along, let's dive straight into it. Starting with the best score and music. So the nominees here are A Playtale Requiem, Elden Ring, God of War Ragnarok, Metal Hellsinger, and Xenoblade Chronicles 3. So, MBG, how are you feeling about that category? How are you feeling about the representation on that list? Well, uh, I actually feel pretty good about that list. Um, I will say, Miles, I haven't played all these games yet, so I do apologize. But You haven't uh, played have... every single game in 2022? No, unfortunately. I have played, oh, played okay. Tale Requiem, which is a fantastic game. I've played and beaten Elden Ring, which is a fantastic game. God of War Ragnarok, I haven't played yet. Uh, I am planning on it. And the reason why I haven't played it is people are like, why would you play God of War? Well, simply because um, I have a week off at the end of the year. I always love to just sit down uh, and play through all the video games that I haven't had a chance to play throughout the year. So it's basically getting caught up on the backlog at that point. So Ragnarok is definitely on the list. I love Metal Hellsinger. And Xenoblade Chronicles 3, while it's not my style of game, I've heard the music in that is phenomenal now if i was to pick i'm going to say metal Hellsinger because dude that soundtrack is oh it is it is oh that warms amazing. my heart dude oh amazing. my god that soundtrack hits so hard if, metal if you Hellsinger haven't played it check it out for sure if you're a metal fan you have to you absolutely oh, yeah. have to the tracks we got randy Blythe from lamb of god we got serge tonkin from system yeah, up and man. down matt heafy from trivium uh tatiana from ginger like the vocal lineup they have it's just the best metal vocalists currently available just all said yeah we'll do some vocals we'll do some vocals for this game and it's oh damn it hits so do you have any any you want to add swap or remove no no like not for, not for this one i'm pretty happy with with um with this like i'm trying to think if there's something else that i feel like could sneak in here but no i think this is a pretty good list overall miles what do you got this is i was so happy with this list if, if i'm being honest again don't get too mad. I haven't played God of War Ragnarok, and I haven't played Horizon Forbidden West this year, okay? I'm sorry. I haven't played it. I haven't played those two. So as we go through those categories, I have to keep that in mind. I haven't played those two games. 
I apologize. Bear with me. But everything else on this list, um, I have played at least a little bit of. And like seeing Metal Hellsinger, that was the one where I was like, yes. All right, they are, you know, making sure they have some representation there because that game soundtrack is so good. Two Feathers, which I think is just a two, two, two composer team did the entire soundtrack for that. And listening to interviews of them reaching out and just basically asking like their favorite metal music. Hey, I'm making a game. Do you want to do vocals? And to have people be like, yeah, sure, I'm in. And then just have that cascade to the point where Minor spoiler, but Serge Tonkian is in it of System of a Down, oh, yeah. one of the most iconic bands, and he does the the climax song to that game. It's like seven minutes long, and oh my god, oh my god, it is such an incredible song. It is so powerful, so much more fierce than anything System of a Down has done. And hearing Serge on that track, mm, mm, oh yeah, dude, ah, oh, so amazing, yes, stoked to see that. Overall, I'm this list rock Elden Ring. The title track of Elden Ring, I think, is oh, yeah. one of the best pieces of music I've ever heard in my life. Holy. Every time, every time I boot the game up, I just sit on the menu and just wait for the boom, that explosion. <laughs> and so stoked to see that there. Uh, Xenoblade Chronicles 3, amazing music. A lot of this is orchestral. Plague Tale Requiem, the strings when the rats come in. Oh, yeah. oh awesome. every time, just tight, tight butthole pucker up when, that, when those strings come in, dude. Oh. So good. I will add one, and I promise for the people who know me, this is only this is the only time I'll add it to this list. Evil Dead the Game. Evil Dead the Game, again, the title track alone to Evil Dead the Game. If you haven't listened to it, Joseph LaDuca, who did the score for all of the Evil Deads, came back for it, and oh, oh, it hits. Oh, damn, it hits so hard. Uh, and right then, I haven't played it. I'll, I'll, I'll give it a listen. Yeah, and then the overall music in general is just very on brand with the, the K. If you've seen Army of Darkness, it's kind of that chaotic, loud, aggressive, abrasive orchestral music every single moment. It's just, it's so, so good. Um, I see people in the chat talking about Halo Infinite. Also, stellar, stellar original soundtrack. There's some confusion about Halo Infinite, you know, this year, because I think technically it was available to be nominated for a lot of categories. Technically, it could be nominated. And it, it wasn't. So people, mm -hmm. I think, shout out to the drummer on the, the Halo uh, <laughs> OST in particular, because my God, the drums on all of those tracks just go so hard. Um, Pretty good. Best action game. Official nominees are Bayonetta 3, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, Neon White, Sifu, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge. All right, Shredders you... is my Shredders is my pick. I love Ooh. Shredders Revenge. Ooh, Man, oh. that that game that game is is one of my favorite games I've played this year. Like top three, it's it's exceptional. The six player uh, drop in drop out co op is is so much fun. I had six six buddies uh, with well, five buddies and myself play through the game uh, when it came out. Man, it's so much fun that game. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say Shredders Revenge. It's probably not gonna win, but that is my pick. As far as if I would take something out and replace, yeah, I'd probably, I'd probably um, take out Sifu, and I think I would put in uh, Kirby as the um, as the replacement for that. I, I see your notes here, Miles. I think you you're saying the same thing as me, but yeah, um, I'd probably give Kirby a nod for this one. I think it, it deserves a spot. Yeah, I would say even if we leave Sifu, I want to see Kirby in the Forgotten Land because mm -hmm. that I'm a huge Kirby fan. Um, but Kirby's been done dirty over the years. A, a lot of Kirby games aren't that great. Let's be real; like a lot of them are fine. 
at best. And so for them to come out and actually put out a stellar Kirby game with with an end game that I'm this is gonna sound like a meme and a joke, but the last few bosses feel pulled straight out of Elden Ring. <laughs> like the last <laughs> few bosses are just end of the world beings, as is yeah. tradition with Kirby games, and it's just oh. Oh, I love that game so much. Power-ups were so great. Gameplay was so tight. They refined the formula in a great way. Yes, Kirby and the Forgotten Land needs to be on this list. Um, but I agree. Shredder's Revenge, oh, as a teenage, as a Turtles in Time fan, as a mm-hmm. someone who played that game every single day for months and months, that was such a good time. Again, speaking of killer soundtrack, that was another stellar score. Um, Amazing. Amazing. The Shredder's, of, of the list here, of the official list, I don't know. I guess I'd probably go neon white because I was just so shocked by the moment-to-moment gameplay in that and how unique that game feels. So I was really excited to see that one on this list because it is just a cool, compelling experience. It's a visual novel, and if I'm being honest, I just fast-forward through all of the dialogue because it's yeah. it's, e- it's either nonsense or it's just bad. So that that slows the pacing of, of things down a bit for me. But once you're in the game, once you have it in your hands, oh, neon white, fantastic. I haven't played it. I will check it out. I've heard good things about it. Well worth playing, for sure. Um, Best RPG. We have Elden Ring. Live Alive. How do you say that? I say Live Alive. I say say Live Alive, but I don't really know which way you're supposed to say it. Yeah, I've never heard enough. I've heard Live Alive, Live Alive, and Live Alive. Yeah. I've even heard Live Alive, believe it or not. Anyway, that one, that, that one, Pokemon Legends Arceus, Triangle Strategy, and Xenoblade Chronicles 3. How are you feeling about this list? This is, a, this is know, an interesting one. I feel pretty good about everything on this, on this list. I am a big Live Alive fan. I played and finished it. I actually loved the original game on Super Famicom. I used to play it with like the translation patch. Um, so for me, I think that is my favorite RPG. I don't think it's going to win. I would probably say that Xenoblade Chronicles 3 has it in the bag for the best RPG. But I'm going to say live alive. And uh, I wouldn't swap anything. I think it's a good list. Um, I appreciate having you on because live alive, live alive. That game is <laughs> so good. It is so... I never played it originally. It's one of those games, mm-hmm. like, I have a lot of retro stuff. I've gone back and emulated stuff like uh, Mother 3, Magical Vacation, a lot of these other cult RPGs from the, the begotten, f- forgotten era. Um, but I've never played this one. And so when they announced the, the big remake of it, I was really excited because it's one of those games people just hold near and dear to their hearts. It's inspired stuff like Undertale, a lot of, a lot of those teams because of its anthology storytelling. And oh, even you know, even it, it being what twenty five years old, whatever it is, it's it was such the stories still held up a lot of the time. Uh, the narrative was great. The flow of gameplay was fantastic. So I love that. This list to me, honest, this list in particular really aligns with my favorite games of the year: Elden Ring, Live Alive, and Pokemon Legends Arceus. Three of I put those in my top five. Those three games are in my top five games of twenty twenty two. So I don't have much to say here. Triangle strategy, I didn't really care for. Uh, so I'm going to swap triangle strategy with Mario and Rabbits. Mm, good Sparks pick. Of hope. Good pick. Um, best art direction. We have Elden Ring. What a twist. Uh, God of War Ragnarok. Horizon Forbidden West. Scorn. 
and Stray are the official picks. What's the MBG pick? I think I think that. Oh, I think this is a tough one because I could see Elden Ring getting it. I could see Ragnarok getting it. I could see Horizon getting it. Um, I could also see Stray getting it and Scorn. I mean, I think they're all very, very good picks for best art direction. I think Elden Ring has got this one. I love the art style in the game. I think everything about that game is just beautifully crafted. I had a, an amazing experience playing through that game. Um, I did 120 hours plus on that game. So I'm going to say Elden Ring has got it. Elden... And no changes either. I'm, I'm, I'll, good list. Again, very good list. I could definitely see why Scorn would get in there. I know Scorn was a polarizing game. A lot of people didn't like it. People did like it, but I think you know its art style is um, is very very striking, and I think a lot of people do like that. So I, I I could see why that that game would get into the conversation for this, but I think Eldering's got it. Yeah, I reviewed Scorn for Windows Central. I gave it a like seven out of ten, three point five mm-hmm. out of five, um, and most of that was because of the atmosphere, was the the visuals. Some of the visuals in Scorn I will never ever forget. Towards the end of that game, it is just a cerebral, just mind F like you wouldn't believe. (laughs) It just culminates in this climax that leaves you wondering what the hell you just experienced. So it is, the gameplay's not great. The combat's not great. It's a little slow across the board, but the last two, three hours, oof, it makes it all worth it. The game's short. You can beat it in six-ish hours, I would say. Um, But the the back quarter of it in particular is, is so, so good. So stoked to see that one on here. Elden Ring again. I made a, a joke tweet about Elden Ring winning basically every single category it's nominated for, but that's the kind of how I feel about the game. Elden Ring is just such a phenomenally yeah. playing and looking game. Again, it's one of those games where people kind of panned the visual fidelity of the game at launch. A lot of critics, you know, or skeptics, I should say, critically, it's acclaimed like no other game ha- really has been. But a lot of critics online said, oh, well, it doesn't look that impressive graphically. It doesn't look like a current-gen game, a next-gen game. Mm-hmm. But that art direction is unmatched. So many of those areas just are burned into my mind. I, I can tell you where everything is. I can tell you how things look. I can tell you how I felt the first time I went into these zones. And that is an achievement in a video game. Yep. Best game direction, we have Elden Ring, God of War Ragnarok, Horizon Forbidden West, Immortality and Stray. I think um, God of War Ragnarok has probably got this one in in the bag. And I haven't played Immortality. I've played Stray. I didn't really care for Stray. I thought it was a cool concept. I like um, some of the gameplay, uh, some of the direction of that game overall, but wasn't really my type of game. Forbidden West is another game that I I, um, haven't played, so it's hard for me to talk about that. Look, I think God of War's probably got best game direction for me. I think it it makes sense. Yeah, I haven't played God of War myself, but just listening to people that I know and respect talk about it, seeing how excited and passionate they've been about that experience. Yeah, I feel like from a storytelling perspective, um, God of War... And its direction and pacing seems to be pretty incredible. I've, I saw someone compare it to a musical. And you have these, these flows of, of ups and downs. But the, the ups are the combat sections and then it ebbs back down. And uh, so, yeah, that, that, I could see that definitely winning that category. 
Um, I would add one to this list that I don't see enough people talk about, and I just I don't think a lot of people played this game this year, and that's Nobody Saves the World. Um, it's a little indie mm-hmm. game from the developers of, of Guacamelee, um, but it is such a great experience. The direction it knows exactly what it wants to be, it knows exactly what it's doing. It's well intentioned with its art style, it's well intentioned with its gameplay mechanics, and it's well intentioned with the flow of every component of the game. So it dropped, I think, in January. So it's kind of it's one of those games that came out in January that everyone moved on really fast and nobody really talked about. Not a lot of people played it initially at launch, but nobody saved the world. Um was really hoping to see that get some love in the indie category, but uh, was a little disappointed that that title wasn't nominated really for anything because I think it is such a special experience. And if you're a fan of retro top-down games like Zelda, Link to the Past is kind of the first thing that comes to mind. Um, it takes that idea and that fundamental and really plays with it in some in some great ways. So nobody saves the world, needs more love. And shout out to Juicebox. What's that developer's name? I'm blanking on it. I want to say juice box, but that doesn't sound right. Drink box. Drink box. That sounds good. Juice, juice box. Boxes. That's going to be my studio. Juice box. <laughs> um, all right. Controversial topic time. Best narrative. This hmm. has sparked a whole series of conversations online this week, but the nominees for best narrative are a Plague Tale Requiem, Elden Ring, God of War Ragnarok, Horizon Forbidden West, and immortality. So, I think God of War has got it. Do you think um, Elden Ring has a narrative? Because that's that's been the conversation. Does Elden Ring even have a narrative? It, it, it does. It, it does. It does. But I mean, a lot of it is, um, you know, you're you're the tainted one, and you have to, uh, you know, seek out the Elden Ring, right? I mean, that's pretty much the. the uh you're the tarnished. The Tarnished, not the tainted. What did I say tainted for? The tarnished one. And, you know, you have to seek out the Elden Ring, right? So um, I think a lot of the times you can get lost in the narrative of Elden Ring. There is definitely an amazing, amazing narrative there, but you have to kind of follow along with it. And it's very easy, I think, in some instances to just just run around aimlessly and just start killing things and, and leveling up and stuff without really knowing what what's going on. Some of the quests in that game are exceptional. I think... I think this is a God of War. I think God of War has got this one. Um, you know, I think the story in God of War Ragnarok is is very focused. It's it, the narrative is what what drives the game, and I think what what makes that game um, and obviously you know 2018 such amazing experiences. God of War Ragnarok has got it. You have a note. I see your note here about Live Alive. I, I would actually put Live Alive into this conversation as well, Miles. It's it's not going to win. But I'd probably swap out Immortality, which I will admit I have not played, and I would put Live Alive in as the uh, as the the last game in that list. Yeah, Live Alive needs to be in here because again, those stories feel timeless. Again, they ha- the game was remade, at relocalized, so I'm sure some of the dialogue has changed from the original. But the overall stories and the o- overarching stories in Live Alive just just feel timeless, and they just resonate with the human condition and life and those profound questions that we that we all ask ourselves. So. Love that. Um, Elden Ring. Again, I don't think Elden Ring is winning this category. I'm with you. No. Um, God of War, I think, will win this category for sure. Stoked to see Immortality, though. Again, I haven't played it, but it's one of those games that all of my nerdy film friends are like, dude, why haven't you played this? Why haven't you played Immortality? And I want to play it because it looks right up my alley. looks weird as hell. And it's amazing to see a unrelentlessly weird game get 
put into this conversation because it's important. That game is all about the narrative. It is a game. There's little gameplay at all. So it's, it's really great to see that in there. The Elden Ring conversation. I understand we all have different preferences. So I'm not going to fault you if you didn't connect or like the narrative in Elden Ring. I made a meme about it online that you have to watch. Elden Ring deserves to be in the best narrative category as long as you watch 50 hours of lore videos online. Um, obviously a joke, but I, I love, I love the world. I love games that leave me with questions. The one, mm -hmm. I love Scorn for that. I love Elden Ring. Elden Ring and From Software in particular, those are games that make me want to understand the world. They make me go out of my way to understand what this object means, what this item means, what this character means in a way that no other game does that. It doesn't mean there isn't a narrative. That doesn't mean there isn't an error because the overarching narrative I think in Elden Ring is incredible and powerful and tells this, this complicated story of dynamics and relationships and ambitions. But that being said, it's presented in an unconventional way. God of War, very conventional in its storytelling. God of War tells you a defined story. You can get to the end. You know the, the things driving those characters along, why they are doing the things that they do. Elden Ring, you are the narrative. You are the one building the narrative. How you shape the world dictates what the narrative is. And there's all of these characters and monsters and creatures that exist in this world that you're living in. Um, and I think that's powerful as well. Just different strokes for different folks. But I, yeah, I think Elden Ring, as much as I connected with it, as much as it resonated with me, I don't think it's taken this category. I, don't, I think but, that this yeah. is one category that will stop it from getting the clean sweep. I agree. All right, here's the big one. Here's the finale. Game of the year. The nominees, according to the Game Awards, are A Plague Tale Requiem, Elden Ring, God of War Ragnarok, Horizon Forbidden West, Stray, and Xenoblade Chronicles 3. Well, Miles, I will say that I predicted five out of the out of the six of these games, including Xenoblade Chronicles Three. I had a pretty good idea that that's probably what was going to happen. It was all about the the sixth game, and uh, I see Stray made made the cut, which is good. I'm happy for Stray to to be in there, but I feel like that sixth slot could have been pretty much anything. Um, I actually predicted that Grounded would make the sixth spot, but you know, there's other really great games that have come out this year, including like Tunic and, and there's some great experiences out there. Right. But look, let's, let's not, you know, mess around here. It's, it's between two games. It's between Elden Ring and Ragnarok, just like many of the other categories <laughs> we've currently talked about. I think the way this is, this is a tough one to predict because obviously God of War Ragnarok, uh, sorry, God of War 2018 ended up winning uh, on that particular year. And it's very easy to say that Ragnarok has is going to sweep Game of the Year again this year. I think that Elden Ring is going to take it, though. Um, that is my pick for the Game of the Year. Um, like you said, Miles, it was just an amazing experience. I haven't felt the way that when I played Elden Ring about a video game in a very, very long time, where it literally just puts you into this world. And it's like, figure it out. Figure out what's going on here. You know, you're on your own now. And I just loved the the discovery aspect of the game, the exploration aspect of the game, the lore in the game, um, the set pieces, the uh, the little side dungeons, the caves. Everything about that game was just amazing. Um, you know, did I did I want to rage quit that game ten times? Absolutely. You know, um, but 
I always felt like the game was always pushing you in the direction you were supposed to go into, but it didn't do it in a way where it was, you know, you had a, a little mini map and, and a direction icon where it said, go here. It was just, you know, you, you have an idea about what's next. Um, and I just, man, I just loved everything about that whole experience. It was from start to finish. It was one of the best video games I've ever played. And it did, it did remind me of Breath of the Wild, which was very similar when that game first came out. You know, you you exit the cave and you're in Hyrule and it's like, what do I do? Where I, where do I go? You know, um, and there's there's something to be said about games like that um, if they're developed and crafted in, in the right way where they can be absolutely unforgettable video game experiences. So for me, Elder Ring's got it. Um, but look, got to walk it easily easily take it and it wouldn't surprise me if if they did but i have i have elden ring for this one what would i swap out uh i'd probably take stray out and maybe put tunic in or i i'd even put shredder's revenge in there honestly i'm i was one of my favorite games this year so let's put shredders in there for uh for stray love that i'm with you i think again i haven't played god of war so i'm not gonna i have nothing negative to say about god of war I can only speak to my experience with Elden Ring, which echoes a lot of what you said. It was one of those those experiences and those moments that just reinvigorated my the reason that I love gaming in a huge way. Mm-hmm. It, it felt like playing Ocarina of Time or Symphony of the Night or some of these all-time great games for me, the games that I just didn't realize that this was how a game could make me feel. I didn't realize that this, is experience, that this experience could exist. And... From Software managed to take this obscure, niche, unconventional, hard-as-hell RPG and have it sell Call of Duty numbers. Have yep. it come out and have everyone talk about it. Everyone fixate on what this is. Have people, I have people I hadn't talked to in years reach out to me and say, yo, are you playing Elden Ring? And I'm like, oh, hell yes, I'm playing Elden <laughs> Ring. And it was just, it was the conversation. And it just elevated the entire... It, you know, this isn't hyperbole that elevated the entire games industry to a mainstream level in a way that we see with like Star Wars and Marvel movies. Like that was everyone was talking about Elden Ring and that is so hard to do. And it's so hard to do with that genre, a, a niche medieval RPG that, that's hard, really, really hard and has a weird story that most people don't understand. And that was one of the best selling games of the year. One of the best selling games of all time. One of the highest rated games of all time. And it's, it's for very good reasons. Because yeah. From Software has spent years and years cultivating, crafting this formula that people like myself have connected with and really, really enjoy. And then they took the, those fundamentals and brought it to an entirely new level with Elden Ring. And it, it's going to sound corny, but it's one of those games that I was sad. It's one of the games where I beat the game and I felt legitimately sad that it was over. Oh, dude, I needed to... Um... Yeah, I was the same. Like, I couldn't really play anything after I beat the game for a while. I I had to kind of detox a little bit from video games because it's such a, uh, an incredible experience where you're, you know, if you play from start to finish, you've at least dropped 60 hours in that. And that's that's being very, very generous. I mean, you're doing at least 100 on your first playthrough for, for, for the most part. And when I beat that game, it was just... You know, it was exhilarating that I beat the game because I've never beaten a FromSoft game before. Um, so, you know, that was another thing. It made it was a lot more accessible. I feel like to just a yes. more larger audience. Yes, it's still very hard. Yes, you, you're going to get one one shot if you you know if you attack the wrong boss. Um, there is no easy mode, and there should never be an easy mode in these games. But it it did enough 
um, to allow for even a more casual from soft player to go back and enjoy the game and and level up. You know, like I think the the thing about Elden Ring for me was there was nothing that you couldn't defeat if you if you got enough um, levels under your belt. You could always go back and kick kick a monster's ass that like destroyed you earlier on, right? So, you know, for me, I think everything they did everything right. I think the only real negatives I had with the game was there were some performance issues, mm-hmm. there were some technical issues, um, there were some frame rate issues. But aside from that, I think the game was an almost flawless experience, and, and I think it, it it should it deserves its game of the year I think nomination, I... and it should win. A lot of people talk about it being obviously one of the greatest games of all time. I, for me, it's my game of the decade. I can't think of another game that, even as someone who's loved Dark Souls 3, going into Elden Ring, Dark Souls 3 was what I consider to be one of the best, if not the best, action RPG. I just, mm-hmm. I think. From Software has mastered the world design. We talk about the way the environments make us feel in Elden Ring. I got a lot of the same feelings with Dark Souls 3. And I went into Elden Ring with high expectations, very high expectations. And somehow, it managed to exceed all of them. Every time, yeah. you know, I'd like to be excited. You know, as much as my, some of my expectations are unrealistic or whatever, I like to be excited about video games. And I just, you know, have the conversation with myself and say, all right, just know, Miles, that, you know, it might not live up to that. You know, there's a lot of energy behind this. It might not be that. And then to have it be more than that and have it get to a new area and then get to another area and get to another area. Like, it's still going. We're still here. We're still in this game, in this world. And that's mm. how I felt about Elden Ring. Like every it, moment, it, every area was just. It also it made me appreciate FromSoft games in a different way because I went back and I, I have since beaten Bloodborne. I have beaten Demon Souls now. Because um, before, I'd always get frustrated with the games because yeah. you know you you die, you lose everything, you have to figure out how to get get back and um, and claim your souls if if you had a lot of them or you start over. And I feel like there was a lot of times where I just got frustrated with the combat and. I just kind of got bored. It's like, I don't really want to do this. This is hardcore, man. I, I, I'm a casual guy, so um, I don't want to go back and, and play these games. But I have since gone back and, and, and played um, some other From games. And now I have a much more um, great appreciation of what they're doing in some of their older games. So, yeah, hats off to, to Elden Ring. It's an absolute masterpiece. Um, I think it is my game of the year. And, man, I can't wait to see what, what From does next. I'm, I'm pretty psyched about the future so the expectations for what they do next are going to be they're on they're on the bethesda skyrim level like the next thing they do is going to have to be it's going to have to be something because they've sold a lot of people on their formula and their world and their style of gameplay and now there's a lot more people watching there were already a lot of people watching elden ring obviously it did very well but now they've pulled a bunch of people into that style and that world and um got to keep them hooked so i'm really interested to see what their next project is absolutely um, my swap as much as i love seeing jrpg love on here with xenoblade chronicles 3 i am going to swap it with another jrpg that i loved uh, and that's pokemon legends arceus um, i know it was pan for looking ugly and i don't disagree it was a pretty ugly looking game but the fundamental tweaks and changes to the gameplay and mobility uh, made it so great. It was such. It wasn't fully open world, but it had o- open areas and being able to seamlessly transition from all your your different mounts, flying, water, running, um, climbing. It just the overall gameplay, the moment to moment gameplay, is the best that Pokemon has ever had by a mile, and one of the best feeling 
open world-ish games that I've played in a long time because it understood the source material and elevated the source material. And so I've been playing Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. I like it, but I'm also in the back of my mind thinking, I wish this was just more of Arceus. So um, also, as we touched on earlier, it's, it's hilariously janky. And there's been some bugs that are just... Yeah, if you've been on Twitter, you've seen them. It is... Ugh, it's so good. <laughs> MVG, that is going to do it for this week's episode of Xbox Chatterdays. I appreciate you hanging out. I appreciate you running through the Game of game of the Year nominee... Uh, or the Game Awards 2022 nominees with me. One more time for the amazing people hanging out with us. Where can they find you? Yes, uh, Miles, thanks for having me on. It was, it was a lot of fun. I appreciate you having me on. You can find me on Twitter at Modern Vintage G. As long as Twitter is still around, I'll be there. Uh, I did set up a Mastodon, but I'm not going to do any of that stuff. Um, just <laughs> Twitter, Modern Vintage G, and YouTube, obviously, Modern Vintage Gamer. Like I said at the start, I do one video a week on a Monday. I may drop a midweek video, depending if there's anything interesting going on in the world of video games. So check out the channel. And uh, yeah, I'm most active on Twitter, so you can find me there. Same. I'll be going down with the ship, you know, on the Twitterverse. It's it's oh, yeah. my favorite platform. I did set up a Mastodon as well, but I looked at it for about five minutes. Like this, I don't want to be here. <laughs> confusing. It's, it's decentralized. Confusing. Yeah. It's confusing. It doesn't make any sense to me. No, you have to have different servers, and then you can't yeah. even search for people by name just universally to see what servers they're on. It's just, it's a mess. But it's weird. That being said, appreciate you. Thanks so much for hanging out, man. And. Hope you have an excellent weekend, and we will catch you guys next week. Take care.